Later on in the show, we talk about Philips and a decision it made to take away some of the functionality that its hub had that enabled it to work with some third-party lights. Well, since this show was recorded, Philips actually reversed the decision that it made. It had recent, it had upgraded the software, so Philips Hue lights didn't work with third-party lights. And when we did the show, that still remained the case. But on Wednesday, it actually reversed that because so many of its customers complained. So what it's going to do, it's going to reverse the software upgrade so lights from other brands will continue to work as they did before with the Philips Hue systems. So in a statement that Philips provided to me, it says they will work on the reversal of the upgrade and they will shortly confirm when it will be available. So when you guys hear Kevin and I talk about this, know that while our discussion is still relevant, that Philips has decided that it will not kill off third-party functionality. Hey everyone, welcome back to the IoT Podcast. This week, we've got a great show for you. I am your host, Stacy Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Toffel. So we're here to talk about bad news from Hugh, great news from IBM and Watson, Kevin's crazy new... Oh, we'll call it mining operation in his <laughs> in his office, and that's, an update on the next. That's correct. And our guest is uh, going to talk about the connected kitchen and also kind of what to do decommissioning a connected device when your company gets sold. So mm. exciting times! All right, so let's start with what everyone's talking about this week, which is mm. the hue, the hue yeah. lights. Kevin? It's funny. They have a new program, a new certification program called Friends with Hue. And right now, I don't think anybody wants to be friends with Hue. They are cutting support for third-party bulbs. Yeah, it is. It's brutal out there for a third-party mm-hmm. light bulb and for a customer of Hue. We first started getting reports of this when people were updating their Hue lights and all of a sudden, their Cree, their Osram, their GE Link bulbs, GE Links, yeah. all of all of the light bulbs that had exi- had previously worked under the Hue uh, hub that were certified under the Zigbee Lightlink profile just suddenly stopped working. So if you weren't a Hue light bulb, you no longer worked with Hue. So just to be clear for people, if they did not yet update their Philips Hue operating software to version one point one one, I know you can check that in the app then they still have the third-party compatibility. Mine still work, and I have not done the update. There you go. So word to the wise, if you don't want to lose this, at least for now, maybe hold off, you know? Maybe. Now, it could be that Hugh does a forced update at some point in time. (laughs) True, true. So let's talk about what's going on here, because I'm very much an open-platform kind of guy, so the fact that... The Hue Bridge already worked with Zigbee Wireless Protocols was was a plus. Is that not pretty standard, that protocol? It is. It is a standard protocol. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I think I know the answer. It's not quite a rhetorical question. I'm trying to give Hue the benefit of the doubt here by playing a little dumb. So basically, they're they're closing things down a little bit more. Well, okay. So here's the deal. It's mm-hmm. so Zigbee is a it's a radio technology. Now, mm-hmm. Lightlink is actually a profile. So that's software that runs on top of Zigbee that Zigbee is certified. Now, Zigbee, as you guys may remember, is kind of in a little bit of turmoil because of the up and coming Thread. What's it called? It all comes back to Thread and Weave. Yeah. mm. So with with Thread, which is the Nest, Samsung, Freescale, 
Silicon Labs, kind of a couple other companies. And let's let's go see, is Philips a supporter of Thread? Because that may answer some questions. Some of what may be coming out here may just be kind of some protocol confusion as they're trying to move to kind of support more modern standards like Thread. It's It's kind of unclear, like what is happening here. Yeah. And just as you were talking about this, I looked up on threadgroup.org and Philips is a contributing member to the Thread Group. So maybe that could maybe. happen. Maybe. It's just, a, and even if it is happening, I'm okay with that, but it's the the manner that it's happening. It's just pretty much somebody flipping a switch here with a software update. I don't think this was very well communicated to the users. It may not have been. And now Philips has always said, though, that the support for these other bulbs has always been kind of just support for this profile. Right. So they have never right. been proactively testing or doing anything with these bulbs. And in their conversation with CNET about this change, what has happened is customers have been coming to them when these light bulbs have had issues or problems. And it right. sounds like Philips is like, this has become kind of a pain. People are coming to us about bulbs not working and we no longer want to deal with it. And I get it. And, and in fact, they are actually going to deal with it because they do have this new Friends of Hue program, which will let them certify the Zigbee bulbs. So, so the Zigbee bulbs that are no longer working after the software update may actually work in the future if they go through the Friends of Hue program. And yes. And so the question then becomes, well, gosh, how hard is it to become you know, interoperable with the Friends of Hue program? Mm-hmm. This is where something like all join or some sort of real interoperable HTTP style standard for the internet of things would be freaking amazing because Mm -hmm. what has happened is instead of some sort of universal, again, HTTP is a wonderful example, Mm -hmm. some sort of universal kind of standard, we have interoperability programs and that means Everybody has to work that much harder to get things to work together. And it's kind of a pain for the consumer, for the startups, for the big companies that have to set up these programs and then certify and test everything. It's just really frustrating because think about how cool it could be if your light bulbs just kind of talked to each other because you inserted like one or two lines of code that said, hey, here's the code that says I'm a light bulb. We've already worked this out. Yep. And you know what? I'm going to go back on something because I gave incorrect information as I look something over here now that's on my screen. Apparently, your light bulbs, if they're already added prior to the software update, they'll continue to work. There may be problems, but they will continue to work. The issue here, or what what Philips is saying, is they're stopping users from adding new third-party bulbs to setups. Oh. So that's not as bad as originally thought, which is a good thing. See, neither Kevin nor I have actually changed. Neither of us have updated because we're both like, we both have third-party light bulbs as part of our systems. We don't want to break our homes. Yeah. So now I don't feel so bad. And what I said about not getting the software update, obviously it's a personal choice. You guys own your devices, not me. But now I don't feel like I need to hold off on that update. Will you let us know how it turns out for you? Well, you know, I have no plans to add any new third-party bulbs currently. That could change in a week, but for now, I'm comfortable saying, yeah, I'm okay with this now. See, I kind of feel bad about this because I'm still waiting for my white dimmer BR30s from anyone. Mm. 
Oh no, except for Hue because they're expensive. So, yes. okay, so that's but they'll work. I can tell you that. I don't actually think Hue has the white BR30s yet. Don't know. I have not shopped for any in a while. No, they don't. They don't have the white uh, BR30s. That was my issue. They only in, have. In which the, case, you yes. need a third party. <laughs> I need a third party because all they have are the $60 color ones. And right. that's so expensive. It is. Well, don't update your hub. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'm still not updating my light bulbs. I'm very sad about this. Yes. Um, okay. So that is the Hue situation. Um, and that is Stacy's rant on interoperability for the day. Maybe we'll come back to that. Who knows? So a little bit more. We're going to move to some enterprise news. IBM, actually on Tuesday. Big and blue. Big blue. Big company. We don't talk a lot about enterprise, but it's a big deal. And IBM, back in March, announced a $3 billion IoT initiative. And in September, they appointed a woman named Harriet Green to be the general manager of their Internet of Things practice. She's actually also the general manager of their education practice. I know, random. I asked her about it, and she's like, yeah, they basically stuck kind of new business stuff. That's me. Education, IoT, sure. Anyway, I spoke with Harriet last week, and we talked about IBM's initiatives in IoT. A couple things worth mentioning. The announcement this week was about IBM throwing Watson at IoT. Yay. Yay. Big data. Big data. Big data. Intelligent learning. Or intelligent learning. (laughs) Machine learning um, and cognitive computing. So Watson, you may know him as a computer that plays Jeopardy. And... You actually uh, played Jeopardy against Watson once. I did. I lost. Yes. It was well, a, most people do. It was against a, Watson. It was a big defeat. <laughs> yeah. It, interesting. Uh, I don't know if Harriet Green told us or somebody else at IBM, but I'm looking at your story now, and I'm just flabbergasted about the amount of data that they say connected devices are generating. Oh, yeah. It's a big number. What was that number? Well, I'm going to read Stacy's words for her. <laughs> and given that IBM says there are more than 9 billion connected devices operating today, and those devices will generate 2.5 quintillion bytes of new data every day over the next 15 years. Yeah, that's a lot of data. That's a lot of data. And Good luck, Watson. Exactly. And for IBM's sake, they say that most of that data, I think 90% of it is unstructured. So it's in the form of words, unstructured text, social media, things that normal computers can't read. Mm-hmm. Um, but Watson, Watson is literate, y'all. It can, it can take in that data and process it. That's, so, that's, I don't want me to cut you off, but that's really interesting to me because I think of how much structured data like, that we work with on a daily basis as writers and consumers and so on. You know, I'm surprised that there's been no standardization for this data. And maybe it's because of the breadth of devices and the type of data, but you know, why can't they use XML or, or, or JSON or something to try and manage the data structure? Have you seen hmm. like, the, well, this is things like doctor's notes that are just scanned in. Right, right. So, well, yeah, it's it's such a range of data. I mean, a light bulb's going to ger- generate different data than a doctor. That's going to generate different data than my Raspberry Pi, and so on and so forth. So I, I get it. I get it. It's very diverse. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting problem. And it's important to know that when you're dealing with IBM, IBM's best and biggest hammer in their toolbox is Watson. So mm-hmm. when you have Watson, every... Every you don't problem. need no stinking structure. No, I was going to say every every <laughs> problem looks like a nail that Watson can hammer home, right? Yep, so, right. 
there are some really cool things. So what they've done is they have on top of IBM has a product called the IOT foundation cloud, which is their cloud for the internet of things. They've got, it's basically, if you want to build a connected product, they've got, um, a partnership with arm. And so certain arm based chips will send their data automatically up to IBM's cloud. If you want to, you know, write the appropriate code. I mean, it doesn't automatically happen if you don't right. write the code. And then you can start sending your data up there where it's like organized and cool and, you know, infinitely scalable. And now you have access to basically like a four API calls for Watson services. And those are an API for voice recognition. So, and a predictive analytics service, a video mm-hmm. and image recognition service, and a textual and analytics service. That's actually really cool. So like, you know, how we're talking about the unstructured data, you've got access to that. You've got a kind of voice recognition, natural language processing service, the predictive analytics that GE always talks about that's in there too. And then the video and image recognition kind of stuff that, you know, Facebook and Google all talk about and they actually use in their products. You can actually get access to some of that from Watson in IBM's IOT foundation cloud. So those are the big things that IBM launched today. And it's actually pretty sweet. And today, by today, I mean this week, because today happens to be Tuesday that we're recording this, but you will Mm -hmm. not hear it until Thursday. So, yay! Go, Watson. Oh, the one other notable thing for you guys out there is IBM's taking a very vertical strategy with the Internet of Things, as opposed to kind of what I think of as a horizontal strategy that the Silicon Valley folks are taking. And that is worth noting because... It seems to be very bifurcated based on where you're coming from. So a lot of the old school industries like Cisco, GE, IBM, they're like, we're going to attack this. Like, here's a solution. I even said solution, like I'm some sort of corporate person. (laughs) But here are a set of products for the retail industry. Here's some for the, you know, automotive industry, for the aerospace industry. Whereas a lot of the startups and companies I talk to in Silicon Valley, they're like, you know what, here's a sensor platform. You guys do with it what you will. So I'm really interested to see how that kind of pans out because they're very different ways of looking at kind of the industrial IOT. Mm -hmm. So throwing that out there, you guys, shall we take it back to the home? Sure. All right. You want to talk about, oh, we should do a quick Nest update. So last week we talked about my Nest trying to uh, roast my family. At 4 a.m. when the garage door opened, even though it didn't. Right. Um, Yes. And and Nest told me at the time that it was my MyQ that was doing this. Well, we turned off the MyQ and it didn't stop. And so I called Nest. Uh I know. We were like, nope. We called that one. We did. So Nest was like, oh, you know what? We read the logs wrong. We think it's your jawbone. Um, What? And I was like, huh, my jawbone. Um, So I did set up my jawbone to work with my nest, but I have a jawbone. It's the jawbone move. It's the El Cheapo jawbone, (laughs) as I like to think of it, um, because I lose them. I've lost Mm -hmm. every fitness monitor, no matter how fancy it is. And so 50 bucks. So I connected it, but when I was connecting it, I realized this one actually doesn't talk to my house because it doesn't have what it needs to to actually connect with my house. It only works on the up to and beyond. Okay. So this one doesn't talk to my house, but it was connected. And so that's what they said was causing the problem. So I disconnected that and it hasn't tried to roast me since. Hmm. I don't know if that was the problem. 
I can't really say with much confidence because we actually had a heat wave in Austin and I ended up turning my air conditioning back on. Gotcha. So we're going to stay tuned. I'm not sure if the problem is solved. Maybe, maybe not. I'd still be surprised if that's what it was, but okay, let's see what happens. So there's the ongoing Ness saga or maybe the not ongoing Ness saga. Mm. So that's the update there. So Kevin, you want to talk about your, your latest purchase? Yeah, my, it was a waste of money. I'll say that right up front. But I learned so much. I was going to say, uh, it's never a waste of money to learn something. No, no, I agree. I agree. And when we were talking before the show, you know, I kept thinking I have to justify this purchase to you because it really doesn't add a lot of value for the cost. I'm talking about a $35 USB ASIC or application-specific integrated circuit. I'm using this little USB dongle in a Raspberry Pi for very low-energy Bitcoin mining. Right off the bat, I'm not going to get rich. I've been doing this for three days and I've barely earned a penny, okay? But, and this is where I get into the whole justification bit, I had to learn, didn't have to, I enjoyed learning so much about how Bitcoin works, how these um, these sp- specific pieces of hardware actually work. I, I've never ever, surprisingly, never built uh, an application from source code in Linux and I got to do that, so that was cool. And I'm just having so much fun looking at the little graphs of this thing churning out hashes for Bitcoin. It's actually got me interested in buying more robust hardware for Bitcoin mining. And the big advantage that I have over many other people that do this, I don't pay for electricity because I've got 41 solar panels on the roof of the house. So most months of the year, we have no bill. We're actually overproducing and we put a balance of power or we build up a bank account of power in with our electric company. So that's the big thing with Bitcoin mining. People are like, I got to pay for electricity. I don't have to. So I think I might actually take this a little bit further. If you're going to do that, I don't recommend doing it on a Raspberry Pi with, uh, I bought the Avalon Nano USB ASIC for this. Uh, Again, $35 it cost me. It was a lot of fun. It was challenging too. I just getting the um, the Pi to recognize the USB part for some reason was was a struggle. But you know, after a couple of hours of tinkering, I had a lot of fun doing it, and I learned a lot. All right, and so we're talking what? Let's see. Is this the twenty dollar Pi? The thirty five dollar Pi? Uh, I've had it for a while, so I don't think it's the thirty five dollar one. It's probably one step down. Okay. The beauty is the Pi can actually still be used as a regular Pi while this is going on because. All of the processing for Bitcoin mining is offloaded to this USB dongle. It's to the point now where Bitcoin mining is so challenging, intensive of a computing process, a regular CPU or even most GPUs, it'd be a waste. So you have to buy these very specific Bitcoin mining pieces of hardware to do it at this point. So... So All of that is offloaded. So I, the, the Pi, the utilization of the CPU on the Pi is like 1% while I'm doing all this. Okay. I was going to say, so I can't like offload, like create like a SETI from my home, all the computers in my home network of if things. Somebody, it's funny you say that because I was doing crunching numbers for SETI while I still can on another computer and, um, you know, before this, and I got to thinking, why hasn't anybody built those type of number crunching bits for, for specific hardware, you know? It's probably just too expensive for like the SETI program to do that, but it would be really interesting because they're so they're very application specific. No, you can't like use this for SETI or something like that. Okay, well, it doesn't know how to do that. It can do one thing and one thing only. One thing, one very specific, yep, fun make thing. Because bitcoins are four cents a month. <laughs> four cents a month for thirty-five dollars, <laughs> but you're solar. You're on solar. Who cares? 
Yeah. I'm like, in several years, that thing will have paid for itself. Yeah, um, sure. And and you wrap the ice pack around it to keep the dongle cool? All right. Well, you're, I sent you a picture of an ice pack next to it. That was my heat sink, yes. <laughs> I, I got to figure something out. It's getting hot. I'm like, I may include that picture picture in the show notes here, just for Go fun. For Go for it. Yes, that's what we're doing. Mining bitcoins on a Raspberry Pi to earn four pennies per month, and we're using an ice pack from the freezer as a heat sink. I love it. Does it. Not, it does not get any better than that. Nice. <laughs> this, is how, this is how we're paying for the podcast. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Also, this week, we had some, some sad news. Happy news? I don't know what to call it. We'll call it indeterminate news. The Orange Chef Co., which made, I don't know if you remember this, Kevin, but we got all excited about it, a device called the Prep Pad. It was a connected scale. You may have actually purchased one. Uh, I have the um, drop scale. Oh, you do? Okay. So this is a competitor, kind of. It's slightly different market segment. But the Prep Pad was a $150 scale. It was connected, sold at Williams-Sonoma and on other retailers. And it, you know, when you weighed stuff... It, or when you put stuff on the scale, it would weigh the ingredients. You would tell the app what it was, and it would tell you nu- the nutritional information in what you were making. And I thought it was a great idea. 30,000 people bought it, but it wasn't enough. And so last week, the Orange Chef Co. sold to Yumly for an undisclosed amount. 60% of the staff went to Yumly, which is a recipe app. So our guest up next is Santiago Marea, who is now the chief revenue officer at Yumly, and he's going to talk about what comes next for Yumly after it has acquired this company. And he's going to talk about kind of the lessons he learned building a hardware device that ultimately didn't succeed mm-hmm. and why it's important to kind of create and build a device for IoT with failure in mind. Hmm. So it's... Maybe it isn't a feel-good topic, but it's actually a really important one, and, and Santiago is great at sharing his lessons learned, so stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast, and I have as our guest Santiago Morea, who is the Chief Revenue Officer now at Yumly. Santiago, welcome back to the show. And since the last time we talked, you have had a title change and a company change. So my goodness, what happened? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know things happened. And, you know, we, uh, it's funny because we were, you know, both at that smart kitchen summit and, um, between, uh, presentations, I had a great conversation with Dave from Yamli. CEO from Yamli, and uh, you know th- that those conversations led to where we are today. So I'm gonna say that you were you were part responsible for that, just you being there. <laughs> just my my sheer presence alone. So for you guys who may be tuning in a little late, or in case Kevin and I don't mention it, what happened was that earlier this actually it was last week. Now got to deal with with the time shift here. Is that Yumli purchased the Orange Chef Co. And mm-hmm. the Orange Chef Co. makes a couple of products. 
there's these cool like films that you can put over your iPad in the kitchen. It made the prep pad, which if you are a longtime listener of our previous show over at the GigaOM site, I had coveted the scale for quite some time. It was a scale that you put your food on it, you put your actually you put your ingredients on it as you were cooking, and it measured the nutritional information of the final product. Yes. There was a, going to be a new product called Countertop that sounded really amazing that integrated like a Vitamix mixer. And I love my Vitamix blender. It's a blender, not a mixer with kind of a similar product that also measured kind of your food intake. And then it made personalized recommendations for you, like based on your activity, it connected with, was it all fitness trackers or was it like Fitbits and Jawbones? Actually, Santiago. Tell me what it was. Yes, I mean, you did an amazing job uh, describing it. I So, yeah, it's all fitness trackers because basically it syncs with Apple HealthKit. And so that integration allows us to get your activity data. And based on your activity data, we can run that through our algorithms and show you, you know, recipe recommendations that will fit your day, right? And the second version of our of our of the prep pad, which was going to be called Countertop, was actually mostly an, a software upgrade. From the hardware perspective, you have some new components in order to retrofit other appliances. But honestly, like the the meat was you know in the in the software. And and you know I say this because a lot of people are like yummy, like wait a second, I don't understand what's happening here. But it makes a lot of sense because wait, wait, wait. recommendation. We have to Sorry, tell them. Have. We we have to tell them first. We haven't told them what Yumly is yet. Santiago. Oh yeah. So yeah. So the way people typically think about Yumly is that this incredible repository of recipes and it has amazing filtering. And it also they started just doing now some of this personalization, right? Um, I don't think most people know like how deep they're going into this personalization, and that's where like. A, both of our companies are kind of like coming together. Now, whenever I've talked to Yumly, they have been very much about rethinking the recipe and kind of rethinking how we kind of digitize food, which I've always been keen on mm-hmm. because I've got this huge thing where I'm like, oh, I eat a lot of food. I love food. I love cooking, but I always have a hard time with the idea of like, I really want to both track what I eat and also track like the food in my kitchen and in my recipes for, you know, when I grocery shop and that sort of thing. Although I totally outed myself last episode of the podcast by admitting (laughs) that I don't actually grocery shop. My husband does it, but I would love for (laughs) the recipe creation and the generation of the shopping list to be a lot more automated. So Emily's always been a very fascinating company. What is the combined company going to do? So what Emily is already doing and most people don't realize because they're, you know, using their their current version of the of the app or the website is big data for food. They are going incredibly deep into this recommendation engine and personalization. And so the way Yangli works with recipes is basically they have this pipeline that if you yam every, anything on the web, any recipe that you find and you yam it and you add it to Yangli. Yummy basically starts understanding the underlying structure of that recipe, right? By doing this with millions of recipes, Yummy starts understanding food in general, right? It starts understanding like methods, 
trends, trends in ingredients. It understands like combination of ingredients, substitutions, what a specific person likes and dislikes, right? And and this is incredible because the way we were gonna do it at Orange Chef was, you know, we were gonna use our algorithms on recipes that we would create instead of grabbing all the repository of recipes available. We will create very specific recipes that we knew would work with the algorithms because they were already balanced and this and that. Which is fine if you if you care about nutrition because that was our angle. But the great thing about Yummy is that because they have millions and millions of recipes, they can focus on whatever is important to you. They don't have to focus just on nutrition or just on this or just on that. I was like, you guys don't have to reinvent the wheel and you get a wider <laughs> mainstream audience, right? That was exactly the conversation we have today, right? Like, he's like, I love this so much. And I love this so much because this is what we're doing. <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, hold on. Like, we are doing the same thing, but you guys started this like over six years ago. And you have, you know, over 11.5 million users. And you're growing 1 million users per month. But like, okay. Like, obviously, we need to talk about this and what, you know, we could do together, right? We got a lot of people that love uh, the idea of countertop and, you know, wanted to to buy the product. But we had even more people that were like, hey, why do I need the scale for, right? Can I just have the recommendation engine without the, the hardware, right? So I don't have to buy this because that idea is really attractive. And so, you know, we were we were looking at, okay, if we don't sell the hardware, and we just focus on the software and we give people what, you know, what they're looking for and make it work with other hardware, you know, in other ways, we will need to find another source of income. And in the meantime, you know, as a startup, we have to find funding to be able to execute, right? So it makes sense from a lot of different areas like product, like team. So as a hardware person, it's time, as, and as someone who almost spent $150 at Williams-Sonoma to buy your scale... <laughs> Last Christmas, it's time to figure out what happens to the prep pad because I believe you said you had thirty thousand users. Yeah, yeah. So we have um, about thirty thousand users, and you know, I think that obviously, like the thing about hardware is like once it's out there, the only thing you can change is the software. The I think what's important to do when you're a, when you're a startup is is at all times, know what's your exit strategy for the hardware if you want to discontinue it. Because you can't just like, when you have a piece of hardware that is very much dependent on software, you can't just like turn it off one day. I mean, you can. A lot of people do it, but I don't think it's like the right way to go about it. Uh, Prepper is going to continue working for people. So obviously it's not going to get, it's not going to get any uh, new features, um, at least not for the, time behind on the current situation. I mean, Yami did, did not buy our, our product assets. You know, I think it's very important for, for IoT companies in general to, to have that extra strategy and to know that, okay, if tomorrow for whatever reason, like we don't, you know, we're not operating anymore, like how do we keep this product alive? Because well, otherwise, like that becomes a, a useful, you know, object. Right. Let's talk about that strategy in just a little bit more depth. Did you have like an escrow account to to fund like developers for it? I mean, cause there it's one thing to be like, I am committed to this, but I mean, to continue to update features with new, as, as the new operating systems come out, that's, that requires mm-hmm. effort. 
I don't know if there, yeah, there's so a cloud there's some, service associated with it, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of ways to do it, and and we did a combination of 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 a lot of them. So first is like like you said, putting some money aside. You also have people that are like you know that are vested in in, in this company, not not just in terms of like shares, but in terms of like you know they care about this, and so you talk to these people from the very beginning and understanding that hey. And a lot of them are, you know, like some some of these people are, you know, are co-founders, right? And so they obviously like want the name of a company, even though it doesn't exist anymore, you know, it's associated with them. So, you know, have a plan on like updating, executing, et cetera. But more importantly, I think that like you have to think about what each product like brings to the table in terms of assets, right? And what this product has, for example, that is very, very valuable is that it's constantly generating amazing, like, food data, right? And when you start, like, you know, looking at the information as a whole, but when you look at, like, trends, looking at trends of what people are eating, what kind of foods, in what proportions, combined with what, then that becomes an amazing focus group. So someone that has a, an interest in understanding these trends might be able to keep that experience alive just to get a sense of those trends, right? And treat it as a huge focus group, focus group for food. I, th- I think there's a couple kind of interesting things in uh, about what you guys have just gone through. Um, and you've actually managed to sell your company, which is great. Um, so you, you managed to take 60% of your workforce. You're still supporting your product, but in many cases, what has happened here is probably not the ideal scenario that you were hoping for going in. Um, and I think in, in Silicon Valley, there's this, this kind of fail fast kind of ethos. And I think with software, that's really great, but with connected products and kind of the internet of things that may not be the right mentality. So specific to IOT, what are kind of the lessons you have learned in building the Orange Chef that you would like to kind of share with the audience? Yeah. Um, wow. There's a lot of them. <laughs> um, Maybe pick your say, top three. <laughs> yeah. So I would say one is a very clear understanding with your with the user, right? Of of who you are as a company, what your goal and intent is. What I mean by that is not just a direct communication with them, but also, like I just explained, like a very well put together strategy of what happens next, right? So it's okay to try things. I mean, like there's a lot of products that are out there that are not IoT, but they're like consumer products that cease to exist or that are discontinued or that even software products that are discontinued all the time. For whatever reason, we think that a product that we buy, a physical product by rights, is, is a product that, that, that should be with you forever. But I mean, you know, fruit expires and you buy fruit and you're not worried about it expiring. You're not going to go to like whoever, like, what is the banana? Chiquita banana? Chiquita. <laughs> I mean, like, my banana is like expired. Like, but, what happened here? But my bananas don't so, cost like $150. <clears throat> and, and hopefully that will never be the case, but sometimes that's cost that much. <laughs> I mean, what you're saying like makes a ton of sense, of course. Like you put some money down, like you, you're counting on this product and, and, and then a lot of times these products like finally disappear or stop being supported after a very short period of time. I think that the again, having a plan 
to what happens next, what happens if we decide to discontinue this product, it's very, very, very important. And you, and you have to have that mentality coming in because that is just the right thing to do and that is just the right communication with your user and also with your company. That's how you are okay at selling fast at hardware. Like you can be okay at doing that if, because selling, selling fast is good. Right? It's not a bad concept. It's not like we all oh, know we shouldn't do it because of the risk associated with it. No. Like, you can do it, but just do it the right way. There's a right way to do it, right? Like, there's a right way to fail fast. Like, support your product. Like, make sure you have a, a, an exit strategy for it. Make sure that, you know, like, it, it continues working. So, so there's definitely, like, you know, a way to do it. There's also a time where, like, Look, after X amount of years, you cannot expect this product to continue like working for forever. And that's not the case with a lot of products, right? You know, there's also that which I think is in general like an expectation that should be like that people shouldn't take like IoT products as a different category. It's also in the same category of any consumer good. How long do you think they should last? I think it depends on the product, right? Like I think that for us, like a kitchen product is exposed to you know different elements and. You know, like the, the typical, you know, warranty period and support periods anywhere between two and three years, right? And so that's typically what's accepted in that vertical. And there's other verticals that have way shorter lifespan and there's some that have way longer. Got it. Okay. That was good advice. Any yeah, other so advice? The first one. Okay. That was still the first yeah, one. That was <laughs> still the first one. It's just, just be mindful of of that kind of stuff, right? Like, it's not just all about creating the product, it's about the whole lifespan and post, right? Uh, the second one is around fundraising. And I think that fundraising for hardware is very different than fundraising for software. I think fundraising was probably my biggest mistake. Like, I timed it wrong. I underestimated how much money I needed at the beginning. And then I just timed everything. Like, it always felt like we were fundraising on the present and not on the future. And that doesn't make any sense because even though you use the present to justify the future, you're fundraising on the future because investors are investing in tomorrow, not in today. And so when it comes to hardware, you have to be very aggressive with your fundraising. You have to be, in general, hardware has lower margins than software. So in general, a hardware company should have lower margins for founders. What I mean by this is like, you can expect to hold the same amount of company and have the same type of valuation that a software company of your similar size, right? Because the, the structure is just not, it's just not gonna work and at some point it's gonna bite you in the butt. And especially because when you look at like a product that you're selling, the number one metric that people are gonna look at is sales. And if you have a very big valuation and it suddenly becomes like larger than, than, than a 5X, you know, of your sales, now investors are questioning like this. And, and the problem of them starting to question this is that it makes them focus on the present and not on the future. And then suddenly the whole conversation like becomes weird for a startup, right? And so it, it's, you know, fundraising for hardware is very different People that are starting hardware companies should know this. Is it impossible? Is it more difficult? No, I don't think so. Like, I just think it's just different. And like, you should time it in a specific way and you should like, you know, have a much more longer term, like, 
strategy for fundraising than, you know, software which allows you to, like, change things and move around without having to restructure so much. So that's the second one. And the third one, the, the last thing, I guess, is, like, the joy that you get at seeing your product in retail and seeing your product out there and seeing someone using your product is so incredible. And that's something that physical products have that software products don't have. And so I would say, like, if it, if you're really, like, if this is really, like, something you want to do, just do it. Like, is it difficult? Yes. Is it different than software and, and do it in an environment where software is king is difficult? Yes. But that shouldn't be enough reason to prevent you from, like, doing something like that. Just be mindful that it's different. All right. Inspiring words. I love it. All right. Well, Santiago, thank you for making the time to talk to us in what was probably a super busy week for you. And congratulations on moving over to Yumly. I'm excited, even though I may never get my retrofitted connected Vitamix blender attachment. Never never say never. Never say never. We have some great ideas around partnerships and revenue and, and activating, you know, other experiences within Yamli, so I, I I will never say never. I just just you know keep keep hopeful for me. <laughs> I will I will keep hopeful. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on the IoT podcast. Mm-hmm.